This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday, 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. What a wild day at the B.C. legislature yesterday with Speaker Daryl Pleck has got the place in an uproar once again. The liberals furious. They stormed out of the place last night. Here is the hot question of the day. Should Plekis be replaced as Speaker of the legislature? Would you say Yes, he's out of control. We got to get him out of there. Would you say no? He's rooting out waste and corruption. Vote on Twitter at CKNW on Twitter. Follow me while you are there, please. At Mike Smith News on Twitter. S M Y T H. Mike Smith News on Twitter. At CKNW on Twitter. Phone the buzz line. Tell me what you think there. 604 331. Two eight nine nine. Well, first of all, I find it I find it a little bit funny the, to hear that clip where Mr. Wilkins says this is not a political stunt. Really? Well, what is it? Um, I I I honestly, and I want to say this on a personal note, I find Mr. Wilkins's behavior uh, in the last twenty four hours and even in the last few months disgraceful with a capital D. Absolutely disgraceful. Uh, what what in spe- specifically are you referring to? Well, I've referenced before, uh, even on this show uh, with you, Mike, where where Mr. Wilkinson felt it felt the need to uh, name call and 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 get personal uh, with myself and with the speaker uh, back when this report first came out and going through this process. Uh, just the other night, Mr. Wilkinson, being the leader of the official opposition, felt it appropriate to uh, be running around the halls at ten o'clock at night, uh, taking pictures on a cell phone of me. I'm not an elected official. I'm a, a staff member of this place doing my job. Uh, you know, I mean, to me, a lot of people would suggest that that's, that's uh, an attempt at, at intimidation or bullying. Okay, I don't find he, that appropriate. He, let's now talk a lot. Uh, let's talk about the uh, drama yesterday at the B.C. legislature around Speaker Daryl Plekas. My guest is Alan Mullen. He is the chief of staff to the speaker. Alan, thank you for coming in. Good morning, Mike. All right, let's talk about how this all happened. Uh, the place is in, in an uproar. The liberals are, are furious. They stormed out of the legislature last night. And they all stood up one by one and said they don't have any confidence in, in the speaker. This all started with you guys deciding that it was important to... Uh, make copies of some computer hard drives around the building and that seemed to trigger this let's talk about that how many computer hard drives did you guys make a copy of uh and why did you do that okay well i mean first i just i I, want to be clear that uh we did not seize anything we didn't take anything from the ledge we backed up uh these hard drives this information and how many Uh, it was the speaker's First and foremost, his own uh, uh, hard drive, the acting clerk and the acting sergeant at arms. Uh, we we asked for consent. We we said why we were doing it, and consent was given. And in the case of the acting clerk, uh, the question was asked three or four times. And if at any time, no, I'm not comfortable. I don't want to do this. That wouldn't have happened. And why did we want to do this? Because we've had at least five separate incidents uh, in very recent times where documents have gone missing. Uh, whether it's, 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 uh, computer documents or hard documents gone missing, disappeared. So, 
the speaker uh, felt, look, we have a responsibility here to protect this information. We have to uh, safeguard because if there's future investigations or future questions, we don't want to be in a situation again where we say, oh, we can't find it or, oh, it's gone. Some of the people in the, around the building who are upset say there's no need to do this because there is a central server at the legislature that already backs up these computers. So there's already a copy, a stored copy of what's on these computers. So you guys didn't have to do that. Are you saying what the speaker doesn't trust this server or maybe that could be? Compromise somehow? Uh, well, I mean, the, the, the speaker nor myself are, are IT experts, uh, yeah. but all I'm saying is we've had incidents in the past where documents uh, have mysteriously gone missing. Uh, so we Can you give me an example of that? Uh, well, there, there, is, there were some examples referenced in, in the speaker's 76-page report. Uh, I, I'm not going to get into sort of the more recent ones just because they, they, they very well may be part of, of future investigations. Uh, but five separate incidents where things have gone missing so we just thought look all we're doing is we're not looking at files we're not looking at emails we're not you know targeting anybody we're just saying let's back it up let's have it separate should people have questions. so these these uh, computer hard drives have now been copied or backed up as you said and, and where is this information being stored now so this being stored uh, uh, at a third party uh, and this this uh, group is protected be by the federal government uh, they they this is the what do you mean they're protected by the federal government? Like protected B. So there's protected A, B, and C. So they deal with sensitive information all the time. They deal with federal government stuff, provincial government stuff, police agencies, uh, uh, law. There's a private company you brought in. Absolutely. What's the name of the company? Uh, I can't remember the name offhand, but, but I can certainly get that. Okay. Why was it necessary to bring in an outside company to do this? It just in the interest of of total transparency and removal from from the 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 legislature. I mean, this this group, this is what they do. They are a what professional is, group. What information is on these computer hard drives that you are worried about, or you want to make sure it's preserved? There's nothing in specific that we're looking at or looking for. Like like we have said, we're not looking at uh, you know uh, specific emails or items or files or folders. We're saying we just want to back it up. Should in the future some investigator or somebody be asking a question, we don't want to be in a situation like we've been in where we have to say, uh, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have that. Let me, uh, let me play a clip of, of, of Andrew Wilkinson here for you and some of the things that he has had to say about, about this. He is very upset about what you guys have been doing. Here's Wilkinson, the Liberal leader. He uh, ignored that request, and so here we are uh, putting this... Uh, information on the table. We've also offered, in order to make clear this isn't any kind of political stunt, to put up a BC Liberal as a speaker until at least next spring, and that has met deaf ears from the NDP. Okay, he's offered to put up another Liberal MLA to replace Plekis as speaker. Your thoughts on that? Uh, well, first of all, I find it I find it a little bit funny the, to hear that clip where Mr. Wilkinson says, this is not a political stunt. Really? Well, what is it? Um, I, I, I honestly, and I want to say this on a personal note, I find Mr. Wilkinson's behavior uh, in the last 24 hours and even in the last few months disgraceful with a capital D. 
absolutely disgraceful. Uh, what what in spe- specifically are you referring to? Well, I've referenced before, uh, even on this show uh, with you, Mike, where where Mr. Wilkinson felt it felt the need to uh, name call and 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 get personal uh, with myself and with the speaker uh, back when this report first came out and going through this process. Uh, just the other night, Mr. Wilkinson, being the leader of the official opposition, felt it appropriate to uh, be running around the halls at ten o'clock at night. Uh, taking pictures on a cell phone of me. I'm not an elected official. I'm a, a staff member of this place doing my job. Uh, you know, I mean, to me, a lot of people would suggest that that's, that's uh, an attempt at, at intimidation or bullying. Okay, I don't find he, that appropriate. He, this, this goes back to an incident that he described yesterday where he said he observed you removing a computer hard drive from an office and you were walking down the hallway with a computer hard drive and he was extremely concerned about that. Is, is that true? Did you have a computer hard drive in your hand that you'd taken from somewhere? Absolute fabrication. 100% fabrication. And I would suggest to Mr. Wilkinson and anybody in this place, if you have a concern and you're standing in the hallway and you see something, you say, I had grave concerns. How about this? Stop me and say, hey, what's going on? Because that's what I would do. At no time did Mr. Wilkinson or anybody see me or the speaker, or anybody else for that matter, walking around with a hard drive. What Mr. Wilkinson saw was me walking through the hallways from the acting clerk's office back to the speaker's office when he felt it prudent to take pictures. What he also saw is me escorting out uh, our IT professional. At no time, uh, and the acting clerk will back this up, at no time did her computer or her hard drive even leave her office. So, uh, Mr. Wilkinson, I would really kindly ask you to stop making things up okay where does this go from here now what what investigations you're talking about preserving uh, evidence or preserving computer records you think are could be important going forward is this around the police investigation still going on well like i said i just want to be clear about that it's it's yes we still have the police investigation going on we still have the auditor general's uh, uh, audit going on and we still have our workplace review uh we didn't uh, want to back up these these items or these uh, uh, hard drives for any specific reason. It's not to say, oh, it, we did it for the police investigation or we did it for the Auditor General. No, we did it just in case because we have we we are so tired of, you know, at every turn, uh, roadblocks being be, being put up, uh, people trying to thwart our our, our efforts here. Uh, we wanted to preserve this uh, information. Uh, should somebody come why, back and say, where is it? Why was the acting clerk of the house, Kate Ryan Lloyd, one of the people that you, you copied her hard drive, why was she so upset about this? She was observed to be in tears in the in the house this week. Why is that? I mean, if you said that she was going along with it voluntarily, why was she crying? Well, I can't speak to why uh, Ms. Ryan Lloyd was was crying. Uh, she had a meeting in the Speaker's office. I was part of that meeting. Um, it was very clearly explained to her why uh, we were doing this. She she did have questions. Of course, she did. I mean, she she's a very very bright lady. Uh, she she had questions about it. We had discussions about it. Uh, why she was upset or why she was crying? I mean, I can't speak to that. I'm not going to speculate. Uh, she but, was upset about it, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm upset about it. Uh, I've been upset about it for, for almost two years now, uh, as has the speaker. So she left that meeting. She was upset about it. 
we had a further discussion. She she was asked three, four times, do you want to do this? She said, yes, yes, yes. Uh, we did it. We had some more great discussions. And then yesterday morning, we had further great discussions. So, uh, you know, the fact that she left the office in tears, like, obviously, I'm not going to, you know, speculate uh, as to why specifically she was in tears. Let me, but she gave her consent. And, uh, you know, we moved forward with that process. Let me play another clip for you. This is of Liberal House Leader Mary Polak uh, describing a three-hour meeting in, in which she was present with the Speaker, Mary Polak. It was almost like a stream of consciousness kind of speech and very aggressive. On a number of occasions, he would lean right across the table, especially uh, at Sonia, not so much to Gary. But if Sonia asked a question, uh, he would answer back very aggressively, lean in, pound the table in front of her. Um, yeah, very erratic, very aggressive. Okay, Sonia is uh, Sonia first and now she's referring to there as the Green Party House Leader. Were you in this meeting? No, I wasn't. Oh, okay, does that sound consistent? D- d- is this your understanding of what happened in this meeting, that he was pounding the desk and getting aggressive? Uh from my understanding, I mean, first of all, I'm not going to really get into too much uh, a private meeting between the Speaker and the House leaders. Uh, I find it absolutely incredulous that Ms. Polak thinks it appropriate to release notes of that meeting. Uh, and, and furthermore, I really question the, the, the validity of those notes. Did she run those by uh, Gary Begg, the government whip, acting as, as House Leader? Did she run it by Sonia Furstenau? Did she run it by the speaker? If you're taking notes and you're taking minutes in a meeting, shouldn't you check with all all the members in the meeting to say, here's my minutes. Are these accurate? Because I've seen some of those notes that, that were released and to say they're inaccurate is an understatement. Okay, these are these are notes in which she said that the speaker, Daryl Plekis, had described the report by Beverly McLaughlin into this whole matter. The former chief justice of the Supreme Court of Canada said that her report was stupid, garbage. Those type of words were in her notes. Did the speaker say these things? Well, first of all, I want to make this so clear. Uh, the speaker has never said anything other than she is an eminent jurist. She is, I mean, his his level of, of respect and admiration for, for uh, uh, Justice Beverly McLaughlin is off the charts. Uh, there is no way that he would ever refer to her as stupid. That is just that is just absurd to even make that suggestion. Uh, uh, and 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 again, me personally, as a as a British Columbian and somebody who knows the speaker personally, uh, Ms. Polak, uh, you know, I mean, come on, that is just nonsense. What he did say is the same thing he has said since the McLaughlin report has come out, and I've said it publicly. He was disappointed. What was he disappointed in? The terms of reference. Uh, her, her, her timelines, uh, you know, it wasn't a legal investigation. It was administrative misconduct. She didn't get an opportunity to talk to witnesses. She didn't get an opportunity to see supplemental reports. So he was disappointed in the terms of reference. He at no time was disappointed in Justice McLaughlin. Okay. Let's continue talking about uh, some of the reaction that came out yesterday with what's been happening around the legislature. Uh, Wilkins, uh, Andrew Wilkinson, who's going to be my guest later on the show, by the way, the leader of the Liberal Party, uh, said that people basically accused Plekis of bullying staff in the building and that people are resigning uh, because of this guy. We saw an announcement today uh, by the acting sergeant-at-arms, one of the guys who had their computers copied, Randy Ennis, saying that t- today's his last day. He's out of here. He's resi- He's retiring. Right. Is he retiring because Plekis has been bullying him? 
Well, I mean, again, you'd have to uh, talk to Mr. Ennis. Uh, Mr. Ennis, I mean, advised me at the beginning of April that he was that he was re- retiring at the end of session. That's two months ago. Uh, Is that it, why you guys decided to? to copy his computer because he knew today was his last day and he was leaving not at all what, uh, why is what is the timing of this why is this happening now uh well we just we 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 had discussions about this uh, you know sort of last week and at the beginning of this week that you know who should we get to do this we 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 need to do this just so you know we can preserve this information okay we didn't want to we this notion of we seize things or we cloned it or you know we're we're doing something in the middle of the night it's utter nonsense, and it's it's Mr. Wilkinson and Ms. Pollack creating this hysteria where you know we're we're we're, we're you know in this shroud of secrecy. Not even close. We gave written uh, uh, documents to Mr. Ennis to Ms. Ryan Lloyd, you know, clearly indicating our intent and and requesting that they that they do this. Mr. Ennis's was done first thing in the morning. He was happy to do so, and Ms. Ryan Lloyd's was done in the evening. Why? Because she's a busy lady. She needs to work on her computer during the day. That's why it was done at 7.30 in the evening, and it takes time. So that's why we were what about at 10. What about Spencer Spruill, who was the chief of staff to the liberal leader, said that he slept in his office all night just in case you guys came prowling by to take their computers or to copy their computers? What do you say to that? I say, oh, come on. I mean, I mean, really? Come on. Uh, and Mr. Wilkinson, I mean, I would just love if we could all just grow up here. So you don't want to, you didn't want to copy any computers, any politicians. It's here. absolute nonsense. There is zero, zero, zero reason why we would ever go in somebody's office or touch their computer. If we wanted, we would have a discussion with them. But why would we? There is, there is nothing to do with the privacy of members or their staff or, you know, caucus staffers or even legislative staffers. These were uh, computers, the speakers, the acting clerks and the acting sergeant at arms backing up their hard drives. What? What did you think of the liberal, all the liberal MLAs standing up last night and walking out of the legislature and uh, basically saying that they don't have any confidence in Plekas? Uh, I think it's a bit embarrassing. Uh, there is no personal privilege there. They are going on, and I will stand by this comment. They are going on a lie by Ms. Polak. Uh, they are following her lead, uh, you know, that, that she has said that, that the speaker said, I can copy anyone's computer. He never said that. It's nothing to do with the members. It's nothing to do with their staff. She knew that. We knew that. But no, here's an opportunity yet again to sling mud at the speaker and create this hysteria to hide behind. I thought it was, there is no personal privilege. And, and, and has, they're going to see that very quickly. And I think a lot of them are going to be we just, very we just foolish. Have, we just have one minute left. Has Daryl Pleck has done anything wrong here? I mean, copying these computers... You said with the consent of these two people involved, is that legal? Is that fully within his authority as the speaker of the legislature? 100%. They are administrators. He is the head of the administration. They are property of the legislature. Uh, and not only that, he did seek consent because he wanted to be fair and open and transparent. He he, he got that consent. Uh, the hard drives were backed up. Uh, nothing more to be said. 20 seconds. Is, is Daryl Pleckis conducting an investigation himself around the place is that why he's doing this currently there's only three investigations one by the rcmp one by the attorney general and then the workplace review that we are collectively working on thank you for coming in my pleasure i appreciate that is alan mullen he is the chief of staff to speaker daryl plekis 
with the uh, liberal MLAs one by one standing up in the House last night and basically saying they don't have any confidence in the Speaker, Daryl Plekis, after he had copied some computer hard drives around the building and amid these in- and continuing investigations at the B.C. Legislature. Let's check in now with Andrew Wilkinson, leader of the B.C. Liberal Party, leader of the opposition in the House. Hi. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for taking the time. C- can you give me your thoughts on on everything that went down here the last two days, your concerns? Well, I just heard Mr. Mullen on the radio in your interview of him. And, you know, I was a lawyer for 25 years, spent hundreds of days in the courtroom examining witnesses and reading the judgments of the judges who had listened to the witnesses. Mr. Mullen is an evasive witness. He purports to be an expert witness when he has no expertise whatsoever. He is quite happy to say what did not happen in a meeting, which he did not attend, and he's more than happy to evade the question of why did the clerk, a very capable and professional woman, well-respected by both the NDP and the Liberals, why did she leave his office in tears? And he says, you'll have to ask her. She's a nice lady. Well, you know, this has turned into a silly mess. The conclusion seems to be, from our perspective, if they're making more uh, allegations, if they're looking for more investigations, they need to stop. They need to bring back Madam Justice Beverly McLaughlin, former Chief Justice of Canada, who's called Right Honourable for good reason, and stop these witch hunts inside the legislature. There's a reason why the legislative police force, senior respected uh, police officers, are now looking to unionize because they feel intimidated by Daryl Plekis, who is currently uh, their boss. uh, Mr. Wilkinson, let me play you a clip of Alan Mullen in my conversation with him a short time ago, I asked him about some of your comments about what's going on around the legislature, and this is what he said about you. Uh, well, first of all, I find it I find it a little bit funny the, to hear that clip where Mr. Wilkinson says, this is not a political stunt. Really? Well, what is it? Um, I, I, I honestly, and I want to say this on a personal note, I find Mr. Wilkinson's behavior uh, in the last 24 hours and even in the last few months disgraceful with a capital D absolutely disgraceful uh what what in spe- specifically are you referring to well i've referenced before uh, even on this show uh, with you mike where where mr wilkinson felt it felt the need to uh, name call and 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 get personal uh, with myself and with the speaker uh, back when this report first came out and going through this process uh just the other night mr wilkinson being the leader of the official opposition felt it appropriate to uh, be running around the halls at 10 o'clock at night uh, taking pictures on a cell phone of me I'm not an elected official. I'm a, a staff member of this place doing my job. Uh, you know, I mean, to me, a lot of people would suggest that that's, that's uh, an attempt at, at intimidation or bullying. Okay, I don't find he, that appropriate. He, okay, Andrew Wilkinson, what do you say to him? He, he, he called you disgraceful there. This is the chief of staff to the speaker. How do you respond to that? Well, I'm not going to respond to petty insults from a staff member hired by Daryl Plekis. You're not going to defend yourself? Well, let me get the facts straight with you, Mike. At 9.30 p.m. on Wednesday, I was leaving my office with some reading to take to my hotel room to be ready for the next day's estimates uh, debate with the Premier. And I noticed Daryl Plekis, Alan Mullen, and a third person who he's now identified as their IT consultant. You'll notice that he can't give him a name. He can't say what company he works for. He can't say where the material has been taken to, or at least he won't. And I noticed these three individuals going out of the clerk's office and into the speaker's office with what looked like a hard drive. 
that's questionable at best as to why they're doing it at 9.30 p.m. I then noticed Mr. Mullinan, this gentleman who's apparently an IT consultant, leaving the building with a large uh, rolly bag full of something heavy and the IT consultant with his typical yellow plastic briefcase. That's I'm a witness. All I was is a witness who happened to be there. And now Mr. Mullen seems to think I'm some kind of perpetrator. Well, they're the ones who have the explaining to do. Let's keep this in focus. The speaker has decided to go on another one of his witch hunts around the legislature. He's had the most senior woman in the legislative service uh, leaving his office in tears. He won't explain why. Uh, He's had the acting Sergeant Arms take an early and unpredicted retirement, and he has his entire police force trying to unionize to protect themselves from his witch hunts. Why doesn't he raise the issue and put it back before Madam Justice McLaughlin and stop this amateur detective work? Alan Mullen told me that he did not have a computer hard drive in his hand, so whatever you saw, you must have been mistaken, because he said he did not remove any computer hard drives from any offices. They, They do acknowledge that they copied and backed up the hard drives of the acting clerk and the acting sergeant at arms, and that was it, and that they did it with the approval of those two officials. Does the Speaker not have the authority and the right to do that if he feels it's important to preserve uh, material in the building? This material and information should all be on central servers. So why are they taking these drives away from these trusted senior officials? They say that that information... Very clear, Mike. Why is the Speaker not coming on to answer these questions? Mary Polak took 16 pages of detailed notes, which were all handed to the media yesterday. She's more than happy to swear a statutory declaration as to their factual truthfulness. The Speaker refuses to be asked questions. He provides um, completely dismissive answers to any substantive question. But let's keep focus on what needs to be done here. We need to serve the people of British Columbia and stop these costly shenanigans inside the legislature. One of your colleagues wrote that there's already been spent far more on legal fees than would ever be recovered or was ever lost in the James affair. Mr. Lentz has been cleared so far, and that remains to be seen if it be completely cleared. And now the speaker's saying he's got tools to make sure Mr. Lentz never works again. I mean, this is getting ridiculous, and the speaker has got to stop these witch hunts, stop the amateur detective work, get people who know what they're doing in place, and that so far has been Madam Justice McLaughlin, you, who he seems to think has done defective work. Well, that's just ridiculous. Do you think Plekis has done anything illegal here? I mean, does he have the authority to back up these computer hard drives with the consent of the people who who were using those computers at the legislature? He is the speaker of the place, right? I mean, he's the administrator of the building. Does he not have the authority to back up these computers if he feels ne- it's necessary to do so? Well, the legislature is a strange place because it should be governed by ordinary employment law. And in any employer situation like this, you would go to the management committee, that is the Legislative Assembly Management Committee, and say, you know, folks, uh, there's been some controversy here recently. Perhaps what we should do is get clones or copies of our drives so there's no controversy in future. What do you think? That would be the responsible way to do this. There'd be all-party input. It'd be done in public because the media can attend the management committee meetings. Instead, we have the speaker himself, for some reason, Mr. Mullen and this IT consultant prowling around the hallways at night. And I happened to come across them and thought, what on earth are you doing? Why isn't this an open process in an employment scenario? 
And you can see why the police officers and legislature are getting a little spooked and wanting to unionize was because it, they're trying to protect themselves from him. Was it appropriate for Mary Polak to release the minutes of those meetings or the, the notes that she took from those from a private meeting? I mean, you're saying, why didn't he go to the, the Legislative Assembly Management Committee? I don't know. Maybe this under this undermines his, his confidence in that committee if you have a, a key member of it, Mary Polak, releasing notes to the media from a private meeting. Why were the meetings in private in the first place? They should have been done open in front of the media and the public at the management committee. So we debated this whether to to make uh, Mary Pollock's notes public, but the content of those notes is so obnoxious and so contrary to what the speaker and Mr. Mullen have been saying, we felt the need to put the evidence on the table. Can, can you... Mary Pollock would be quite happy to be cross-examined on her notes on the basis that Mr. Mullen and Mr. Plekis you know, we're reaching the point, this is ridiculous, we're saying it's probably time to put the under oath and get them properly examined. That's what Madam Justice McLaughlin had to do, and she had limited terms of reference, and if the Speaker doesn't like the terms of reference, then let's ask her back with the broader terms of reference that he wants. Last question for you, and then we'll take some calls in the open line here, but can you work with this guy now? I mean, all all your MLAs stood up and walked out of that place last night. Can you work with this Speaker? Or you, it, it sounds like you're going to be forced to work with him because he's, he's not going anywhere, it sounds like, according to Horgan. We have a duty to the public to represent 42 of the 87 ridings in British Columbia to the level best of our ability. Uh, There's constituency work, like making sure that people's uh, government applications are being handled, uh, looking out for wildfire concerns in our ridings, looking out for people's housing issues. That's all done on a regular daily basis. And then the legislature, we are the opposition. Our job's to hold the government to account. We did that yesterday in question period. We did that yesterday in what are called premier's estimates, where I and other people ask them a whole series of questions. That's our job. We'll continue doing that job. And sadly, in British Columbia, we have such outdated legislation that the speaker can only lose his job if he dies, resigns, or ceases to be a member of the legislature. There's no room for incapacity or unfitness for office like there is for the American president and for the prime minister. So we're in this okay. kind of backward situation where the speaker gets to do whatever he feels like. And we've succeeded in having the leading jurist in the land, uh, Beverly McLaughlin, come and clear the air to some degree. If there's more air to clear, let's invite her back and not have this amateur hour conducted by Alan Mullen, who has no qualifications in life whatsoever. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, Mike. All the best. That is Andrew Wilkinson, leader of the B.C. Liberal Party. Let's talk about U.S. President Donald Trump and his latest trade war going after Mexico. Uh, This time, the U.S. president announcing he will impose a 5% tariff on all goods coming uh, coming into the United States from Mexico. It'll be starting on June 10th and rising 5% a month until it reaches 25% in October, Trump says. He says this is to pressure Mexico to do more to curb illegal immigration into the United States. Whoa! The stock markets do not like this one bit. The TSX is down 53 points right now. I guess that's not as bad as what's going on south of the border. The Dow Jones is down over 300 points, over a 1.2% decrease in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Let's check in now with Mark Warner. He is a trade lawyer in Toronto, international trade. He's the principal at the Ma Law Group in Toronto. Mark, it's nice to talk to you again. Hi, how are you doing? 
I'm great, Mark. Thanks for coming on. Did anybody see this coming from Trump? I mean, you never know what's going on with this guy. He likes to keep people on it, uh, guessing what he's going to do next. But was there any indication at all that this was coming? Yeah, I don't think there was anything, any indication that this particular thing was coming. But I, I think that it's been clear for a while that Trump, I think we know he likes leverage as a negotiating tactic. And he's got a lot of balls in the air. He's been stalemated with the uh, China trade war. And he's got a lot of articles coming out saying that Mexico is the primary beneficiary of um, the China trade war in terms of new investments. And he's got Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, the Democrat, kind of slow walking the USMCA agreement through Congress. So I, I think that um, I, I was expecting that he would try to do something to regain control of the narrative. And I was thinking it would probably be more like, again, re, re, resurface his threat to um, withdraw from the existing NAFTA. And he may still do that <laughs> down the road. But I, I, I think um, no, no one was really perceiving uh, this, but I think some form of uh, leverage uh, threat was probably something that um, okay. was to be expected. Okay, Mexico, obviously a major trading partner for the United States, over $340 billion worth of goods. And Trump says that Mexico has taken advantage of the United States for decades, he says. Is there any truth to that, Mark? Um, probably not a lot of truth. I mean, he, uh, not just Trump, but a, a lot of Americans, including Democrats, there's a, there's a sort of a very uh, um, technical legal issue around the fact that Mexico and Canada have this uh, national sales taxes um, that uh, the Americans don't have. And so that sort of uh, the way that plays out is it tends to disadvantage um, um, American exports versus imports. And, and that tends to play out more so with the Mexican market. So that's where that comes out. But I think that, so, and, you know, so he's not alone in raising that issue, um, although he hasn't, that hasn't gone anywhere just yet. But linking it to, I think his main concern is linking it back to immigration. Yeah. I, I think it's probably not really worth spending too much time getting into the substance of what he's trying to say. I mean, really what he's trying to do here, he's trying, I think, to, get movement on both the immigration front and on the USMCA front. And I think that's really what's just motivating him. And the Mexicans seem to be reacting, uh, you know, in stride by saying, okay, well, we'll send some people up to talk to you and we'll continue working through the passage of USMCA on our side. And I think, you know, Trump has left two weeks of uh, negotiating time before any of this takes effect. So there's, there's time for something to uh, face saving, um, you know, device to be found in the, you know, before the, okay. before they go into effect. The okay. deeper problem is what happens with the, with the USMCA and Congress. Right. The, and okay. You just, you just anticipated my next question. The USMCA, the United States, Mexico, Canada agreement, which of course is basically the new NAFTA agreement. It's been, uh, has not been ratified yet. Is, 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 is this new NAFTA deal threatened by this now? Um, I don't think it's necessarily threatened. I, I just think it's, it's it's part of the game that we have to watch. I mean, the, the, the news the last couple of days are pretty good. Canada's moving it through its parliament. Mexico's moving it through its parliament. The United States, uh, the United States Trade Representative has put the first draft statement of administrative action through Congress. Speaker Pelosi has more or less indicated that she's okay with letting it pass. It's really a timing issue. And so I think we need to separate the signal from the noise. And these threats and legislative maneuvers... You know, we're not used to it in Canada because we're used to majority governments where the prime minister can get his seal to do whatever he wants. But this is part of the process in the United States. Okay. And I think I would still say that USMCA, uh, you know, 
is on track for something passing in the fall in the American Congress. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure that this is going to tip it over the edge today. Mark, thanks for coming on today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome. I appreciate it a lot. That is Mark Warner. He is an international trade lawyer. He is based in Toronto. His company is called MAA Law in Toronto. I appreciate his time today. Let's talk about NBA fever sweeping across Canada. It was an historic night for Canadian basketball fans. Last night, the Toronto Raptors won game one of the NBA finals against defending champions, Golden State Warriors. I mean, that Golden State Warriors team, I mean, they are just loaded. They're a superstar dynasty, historically great team. I was a little dubious about the Raptors' chances here, but man, I thought the Raptors looked pretty awesome last night. They certainly deserve to be in the finals. Raptors player Pascal Siakam, what a great game he had last night. He spoke about the effect of the home crowd on the team last night. At home, I mean, the fans was amazing, man. I just want to say that um, from from coming out, you know, from warm-up to to the, to the end of the game, they just the support and, and, you know, going crazy. Um, i never seen anything like that. Um, just, you know, just happy to be a part of it. Oh, wouldn't it be awesome if they could pull this off? I'm on the bandwagon big time. Thursday night marked the first NBA Finals game to be ever played outside of the United States. Game two also in Toronto on Sunday. NBA fever spreading across Canada, but the Toronto Raptors remain Canada's only NBA team. Oh, if only Vancouver still had the Grizzlies. What a sad day that was when we lost our uh, NBA team. Let's check in now with Arthur Griffiths. He's the former owner of the Vancouver Grizzlies. I'm really pleased he could make some time. Hi, Arthur. Hi, Michael. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for coming on. You bet. Is, is this a little bittersweet for you, watching the Raptors here and all the NBA mania sweeping the country here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, to be honest with you, I'm just uh, I'm just ecstatic for the game uh, yeah. and, and in Canada. And uh, the fans, whether they be Raptor fans or not, it's not very often Vancouver, right? Including myself included, are cheering for anybody from Toronto. So uh, that's a good thing, I suppose. But uh, yeah, it's a little bittersweet. But you know, life, life, uh, life does it what it does, and I'm just excited to see uh, what's going on in Toronto. Hope one day we'll get a team back. Raptors came into the league the same year as the Raptors, I recall, right? Yes, the Grizzlies yeah. and Raptors were the same year, the same expansion process, same expansion. Uh, uh, timeline. Uh, they, uh, of course, Toronto had to build an arena to to house the uh, eventual uh, Raptors. But uh, what we were we were under construction with uh, what was then GM Place. Okay, looking back at 1995, that expansion year, Arthur, can you tell us a little bit about? Of course, because everybody rem- remembers you with the, with the Vancouver Canucks. How did you get into NBA basketball? How did it come to be that you were part of the ownership of the group there for that brought the Grizzlies to Vancouver back then? Well, twofold. Uh, we were building the arena for the Canucks, uh, the new arena, GM Place, and now Rogers. And what we were what we were uh, cognizant of was uh, was well, first and foremost was that you know uh, a, a, an arena like that requires 
uh, attendance. It requires, uh, uh, you know, events, if you want to call it that. So another team, uh, namely the NBA, was a logical uh, thought process. And then the second part of it was that I, being a board of governor of the National Hockey League, uh, new owners who either owned stadiums like we were about to uh, and, and had the multiple tenants. And secondly, some of them owned both teams as well. So I got a bit of a first-hand look at what the business looked like from uh, an owner's perspective, never mind an arena uh, ownership uh, thought. So the fact is it was just uh, it seemed to me like a natural process, but we didn't have complete control of the agenda. That was the NBA and in some ways Toronto. I remember going to some Grizzlies games, and I really, really enjoyed them. It's a, it's an awesome sport to watch in person, especially if you've got tickets that are pretty close to the to the court. Because these athletes are just these huge guys; they're just incredibly talented athletes. It's such a a super entertaining sport that to be brought to, especially when you're watching it up close. What what, what were your thoughts and what it was like watching those games? Well, you know, it's it's you, correct. The, the the sport actually, because of the nature of you know, there's not any helmets and face guards or anything like yeah. that uh, you know you're you're it, and so for i think the thing that people really enjoy about it and i do uh, is that you can see all of the expressions and the, the, the the grit but but the other part of it is that you've got these very large men and women yeah. of course <laughs> but with grace and finesse that you would think how did that happen and yeah. it's how did they accomplish that but it is it is a uh, Great sport live, as you said, uh, in person and uh, and even right now, of course, on television because you do get up close and personal, as they say. Speaking to Arthur Griffiths, the former owner of the uh, Vancouver Grizzlies NBA team, well, when the uh, the Grizzlies began, of, of course, they're an expansion team. They did, they did not win a, a whole ton of games, but I remember that first season being very exciting for the crowds. I mean, how did how did you guys do that first season for uh, attendance? Oh, attendance! I think we averaged about seventeen thousand. Uh, uh, we averaged about seventeen thousand uh, um, uh, spectators or fans, if you will. That's great. Um, but but our uh, our uh, perspective on the game was that we would do our best to compete on the court. But if we didn't entertain people at the tournament, we were going to be in trouble in the terms of off the court. So that was my uh, my uh, goal: is that our team of operations off the court, entertain the fans. Because that's what we can control. We can't control how well the team plays or any of that. But we did our best, and I think we accomplished it to create this spectacular entertainment experience for our fans. How did we end up losing the team? Yeah, very simple story. Um, my partner, after I sold the team, and both teams to John McCaw, uh, he sold, uh, within about a year, I believe, uh, the team to a guy by the name of Michael Heisley. Uh, it was intended, uh, or at least we were led to believe, to keep the team here. But he clearly had an intention of moving uh, the Grizzlies from Vancouver, in this case to Memphis, and uh, had to demonstrate to the NBA that the team was not, uh, uh, how would I put it, viable. And it's, that was hogwash. It was rubbish. Uh, the commissioner then, now, now the commissioner now recognizes that was not the case. However, uh, you know the case was made. We had to do uh, we had to do uh, uh, our best to convey that information to the um, um, uh, what do you call it uh, the commissioner that we would be viable and we were supposed yeah. to keep it for five years and uh, we intended to do that, but unfortunately the league got uh, I guess I call it hoodwinked. It's a darn shame uh, for Vancouver. I I think. Do you think we'll ever get an NBA team in Vancouver again? 
Well, it comes down to two things. Uh, I think the the other historical questions that needed to be answered would have been, would it it work, be viable? That's not a question any longer. The questions are uh, the arena, and someone needs to strike a deal uh, with the existing arena or, or build another one. And the other option would be, of course, is to find the investor group that believes that the investment uh, would not uh, uh, lose a great deal of money, uh, if any, it shouldn't. And then and secondly, uh, could they afford the price? Seattle's getting a, an NBA team, right? No, there's been lots of rumors. They're getting an NHL team, uh, which will be open up in a year or a bit, year and a bit now. Uh, but uh, they're building a brand new arena on the old arena site. And so... There's lots of rumors that they're going to put forward a request for a team. I, I would hope that what we would do here in Vancouver, or apart from Seattle, whatever they do, is to to seek out if there was a, an appetite for it, for maybe a relocation. And if they decide to expand at some point down the road, that the Vancouver investor group was uh, ready, willing, and able to uh, put their foot forward and their money. Just got a minute left here, Arthur. You're a Raptors fan? Yes, I am. Uh, I, Larry Tannenbaum, uh, you know, the chairman and one of the owners in Toronto, and I go way back, in fact, to the Grizzlies days. And uh, he wasn't an owner. He was actually an unsuccessful bidder for the team in the beginning, and uh, ends up owning it now. But uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan. I, I, I love what they've done uh, to, really, they've, they've recognized they've got the country uh, uh, by the tail, so to speak. And I think, yeah. uh, as I said to someone yesterday, look, at the end of the day, uh, it's not very often. I can think of the last time that our country was united around a sporting event. It was 2010, the gold medal game against the Americans. Yeah, right. and that's what's going on tonight, uh, or sorry, right now. And I'm, I'm, I think that's good for. It takes distraction away from stuff that's uh, not always okay. very pleasant and positive, And this is a good thing for all, for all. Thanks for taking the time today. You bet, guys. Thank I appreciate that. Arthur Griffiths, the former owner of the Vancouver Canucks, and of course the Vancouver Grizzlies. Maybe one day we'll get an NBA team back in Vancouver. Let's talk about the minimum wage in British Columbia going up a buck twenty an hour starting tomorrow. Go to thirteen eighty five. For liquor servers, it will be somewhat less. The NDP government hiking the minimum wage every June until it reaches fifteen dollars and thirty cents an hour in two years. The government says, meanwhile, look what's going on next door in Alberta. Got a new conservative government there with Jason Kenney. They're cutting the minimum wage. They're going the other direction. Starting June 26, it's going down for only for workers under age 18, though. If you're under 18 in Alberta, minimum wage currently $15 an hour, as the previous NDP government hiked it up. This new uh, United Conservative government reducing it to 13 dollars an hour for workers under age 18 have a listen to this is premier jason kenny defending the reduction he said this 13 bucks an hour is a heck of a lot more than zero bucks an hour and that's the option here okay okay yeah i get 13 dollars an hour is less than nothing that is true kenny then went on to explain the reasoning behind the reduction in the minimum wage for workers under 18 employers have to provide additional training and supervision for them which is another implicit cost the ndp priced a lot of them out of the labor market all right let's talk about this issue now with my guest ian tostenson president of the bc restaurant and food service association ian it's nice to talk to you again you too mike how you doing i'm great thanks for coming on i I guess when when kenny says um 
thirteen dollars an hour is better than nothing. I guess I guess he's saying it's better than not having a job at all. Which I I suppose he's saying that a high minimum wage was threatening jobs in Alberta. You know, what what is your take on the minimum? Well, first of all, let's talk about what's going on in BC here. Yeah. The minute the minimum wage going up a buck twenty an hour tomorrow to thirteen dollars and eighty five cents an hour. That's a quite a that's quite a big hike. What is that as on a percentage basis? Well, it's about 10% for regular and then about 11% yeah. for uh, liquor service, which is a whole other issue we can talk about. Yeah, that's Kenny's pretty big right. I mean, Kenny, is there, is there is an implicit cost to the employer to train, and so if you're at 15 bucks an hour, who are you going to take? Someone with experience or someone with that's not experienced? And that's where sometimes these policies, they all sound great, but they actually hurt the people that you're trying to help in the first place, which is trying to raise the bottom up here a little bit. Okay, what's the impact of a $13.85 minimum mm. wage on the restaurant sector? So I have a, a restaurant group in the Lower Mainland. They have five restaurants, so they're medium-sized restaurants, and they're working hard. So this year they're paying $50,000 extra in um, in the uh, medical service uh, tax. And now this means to them, this increase in wages is going to cost them another $130,000. So across five restaurants, it's almost $180,000, $190,000, which is roughly $40,000, turns out about $40,000 per restaurant. So that's a lot. I mean, um, how do they recover that? Do they put their prices up? Do they cut their labor? Um, On top of that, too, Mike, as you and I have talked in the past, Liquor prices have gone up, courtesy of the BCLDB. Food prices are going up. Uh, property taxes are going up. So there's a lot of tension right now for restaurants in their operating models. To uh, it's not it's not a wage increase in isolation. You know, and, and as you know, I mean, stats can will tell you that restaurants have a have a uh, before tax profit margin of about four percent. So they don't have a lot of room to yeah. uh, to make mistakes. Yeah, they've got a very narrow margin there for error, like you said, and a lot of restaurants don't make it, right? You've told me before, what is is the survival rate for a startup restaurant? Well, you'll lose about almost 50 or 60% in the first year and a half for reasons that, you know, Granny's spaghetti recipe didn't work out so well or they didn't have enough cash. And I really feel sorry for the independents because they don't have the buying power. They don't have the negotiating power to be able to uh, stretch themselves. So who's very vulnerable are a lot of the family businesses that just don't have the ways and means to be able to make this. We we try as an industry, I mean, we, we've had to put take price, but we try as an industry not to uh, take too much price because it's so competitive out there. We have so many other options to feed ourselves beside restaurants. So we have to be very competitive. And so it's, you know, I think the government sometimes thinks, well, you know, just put your prices up and away you go. It's a very, very sensitive yeah. issue that way, especially really? talk about affordability, right? I, mm-hmm. And I think the issue here is, you know, the government talks about affordability. And I was thinking this morning, Mike, we need to make sure business can do business in an affordable way. And, and that's where I think, you know, this, it's not so much about the minimum wage. It's all the inputs that go into restaurants or small business that need to be respected by levels of government because they're the engine of employment in BC. Yeah, you mentioned some of the other tax pressures on small businesses like restaurants. I, I imagine a, a, another big input cost for a restaurant, a restaurant is your rent, right? And that's got to be going up too. 
Yeah, so property taxes are, uh, have gone crazy, especially in Vancouver. So you're seeing restaurants, you know, relocating to uh, yeah. to avoid that. And that's not all of Vancouver. It's, you know, certain hot areas in, in Vancouver. Um, there is a very famous uh, restaurant on West Broadway that you can actually go and it's a drive-in and you can go inside. They pay close to $600,000 a year in property tax. Wow. Wow. Now, you know, uh, that's just ridiculous. Now, and that's that's because the property is being taxed at some higher and better use than a restaurant. So um, you have to sell a lot of uh, hamburgers, et cetera, right, to make that happen. Okay. It's just, it's just it's out of context. And it, it makes me angry that one level of government doesn't really know what the other level of government's doing and that the government says we've increased the minimum wage. I can tell you that employers go, we want to play, we want to pay our employees fair, but we want to make it make sense. So a lot of places in the States, uh, if you are a tipped server, so I just got off the phone with, with another restaurant group in Vancouver, and he said, look, if we're paying $15 an hour to our servers that are getting tips, they're also making another 16 to $30 an hour on tips during a six-hour shift. So right. does it make sense to pay them $15? And the answer probably is in the economics of this, no, give it to the people that aren't making tips. Mm-hmm. And so um, the government, they had this fair wage commission, and, they, and the, the good thing is it's predictable. We knew this was coming, but it is a big increase, 10%. Yeah. So what happens um, in the same restaurant group, he said, well, it's really easy. I have a budget for labor, and if that budget goes up, I just cut my labor. Simple as that, because I have to make my operation work. And then when I do that, I'm looking for other ways in my operations to a new service model, mobile ordering. And his point was, millennials love that kind of stuff. They don't care. They'll they'll do their own ordering in a restaurant. They don't necessarily have to have a server. So there's a whole bunch of things structurally that happen when you increase the kind of cost on small business. Okay, speaking to Ian Tostenson, he's the president of the BC Restaurant Association. Okay, you mentioned, Ian, like the cost pressures on a restaurant, especially having to pay a minimum wage for someone who's making tips as well. But we got a liquor server rate in BC right now. That's going up as well. That's going up $1.30 an hour to $12.70 an hour for a liquor server. Is mm-hmm. that is that typically a, a waiter? Yeah. Yeah, okay. so and, and the way it works is they... Um, they make their tips, and then they pay a percentage of their tips to the house, and that goes to help out uh, increase the wages of the people in, that are in the kitchens and, and uh, hosts and stuff. And so the system works pretty well. Employees manage it. It's not a management thing. Uh, the government came out and said, keep your hands off, all that kind of stuff, which is good. We support that. So the, 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 the model for a restaurant works quite well that way because everybody's kind of sharing in the prosperity. You you need good food, you need good service. And so that balance is being changed, though, because the government felt that paying a server, and in our case, most likely the servers are are women, um, if they have a different wage rate, it's kind of a sexist thing, and, uh, and that's not fair, so they decided to make it all the same. But there's consequences of all this kind of stuff, too. I think you'll find that most servers um, work for their tips, and they don't really care about their so much about their minimum wage. Do, do you think that any restaurants could go out of business as a result of a rising minimum wage? Yeah, for sure. I think it's, it's a breaking point. It wouldn't be in isolation, Mike, uh, because of this increase. It would be because 
Um, the business model has shifted. I mean, look at the uh, effect we've had now on third-party delivery, like skip the dishes and stuff. That's that's really rocked the world. And what we call near restaurants, which are restaurants that are producing brands and doing nothing but home uh, home delivery. So an independent that is a bit capital-starved and has had you know a wonderful recipe for success probably is not going to do well in a the market's shifted, b the costs have gone up, they don't have the buying power, and now they're faced with you know more cost, uh, you know twenty thirty thousand dollars more in cost. Um, it, that could be the tipping point for absolute for sure. Okay, stand by, Ian, as we take a break. We'll come back and talk more about this. I'm going to open the phone lines. Phone me up and tell me what you think about the BC hike in the minimum wage going up by $1.20 an hour on Saturday. The minimum wage will be $13.85 an hour uh, starting tomorrow. Uh, the government's not finished hiking it yet. They say they will it will rise to $15.30 an hour over the next two years. Let's talk about a shakeup going on over at Surrey City Hall where a city councillor has announced that he's breaking away from Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum's Safe Surrey Coalition Party. Let's check in with Janet Brown now, global news reporter on the story. Hi, Janet. Good afternoon, Smitty. Yeah, fireworks out here in Surrey again. Another interesting day. It is Surrey Councillor Stephen Pettigrew, uh, Smitty, announcing this morning that, as you say, he is breaking away from the Mayor's Safe Surrey Coalition and sitting as an independent instead, and all this is effective today. He basically told me this morning that, quote, he can't take it anymore, Smitty. He says he's been doing his very best to cope and represent the people of Surrey within the Safe Surrey Coalition, but he says the last few months have been, quote, stressful and very, very trying. And he says the primary driver for his decision to leave the party, he says, is the removal of up to 50,000 trees, 50,000 over the last seven months, and also he says the lack of public consultation on moving from the RCMP to a civic police force. Here's some more of what he had to say. I have honored my commitment to the Safe Surrey Coalition and to the people who voted for me regarding the three pillars of our campaign. In light of recent decisions made by the Safe Surrey Coalition resulting in the loss and projected loss of our tree canopy, I can no longer support that party and I withdraw my endorsement of the Safe Surrey Coalition. I will complete the remainder of my term as an independent councillor and I will continue to work with Council to the best of my ability. I look forward to serving the people of Surrey, and I ask for your good wishes and prayers. And does it have anything to do with the policing issue and a lack of public consultation? It's the, the primary driver is the, uh, the trees. So all these other things are contributing factors, but the, the final straw was, uh, is the Council has, and the Safe Surrey Coalition has endorsed the removal of almost 50,000 trees over the last seven months. These previous months, have they been really frustrating for you as a councillor? Yeah, it's not just uh, specifically one person. It's If people have been watching the council sessions, they pretty much see that I, I stand alone. It's been eight to one and over and over again, so I've been doing my best to cope and to represent the people of Syria and to, to be a, a voice for the people. But it's, it's been very, very stressful and very, very trying and so I'm very thankful for the encouragement and support of, of members of the public. That, that, But yes, it's been a very, very challenging time. And I don't single out a particular person. It's just uh, 
the council seems to be going one direction, and that's, that's unfortunate. Has it been a tough decision for you to make? No. No, I've, I've been thinking about this actually for several months. And I've been encouraged to, to stick it out, but uh, I just can't take it anymore. I just, um, we, you know, I worked so hard with, with members of the community, and as, as a as a united public, we worked so hard to try to preserve Hawthorne Park. And now we're just, I just, I can't remain in this environment where this just continues to happen, where the trees are taken down and, and no regard is given to the environment. It's it's not a it's not something I want to be involved in or associated with so that's why i've gone as an independent you know it really it's not going to change much because it's just more of a, a semantic uh, you know, i'm still going to probably stand alone when issues come to council and you know i'm still going to work with everybody you know it, this doesn't change my relationship with the individual council members individually I, I get along with them fine and you know we, we joke around and we go for coffee and, and stuff and that's not going to change it. but at a policy level i, I don't agree with what's happening at a policy level but uh, yeah, so it's it's as as far as anybody watching and looking in from this from the outside, they're not going to see much of a difference. It's it's the same thing. I've been independent for the last several months, but I no longer wanted to be associated. People keep associating me with a safe Surrey coalition, and I don't want to be associated with that party anymore. That's uh, Surrey City Councilor Stephen Pettigrew in conversation with our own Janet Brown, announcing that he is quitting. Uh, Mayor Doug McCallum's Safe Surrey Coalition. Very interesting uh, interview, Janet, and what he had to say, saying that he's mostly upset by the loss of trees in uh, in Surrey. I haven't heard a lot about the uh, the loss of trees in the city. There's been a little bit of media coverage, but not a whole lot. But a lot of these trees are being taken down for, for development purposes, or I know there's been some uh, road work done and water main work done in the city that required uh, trees to be taken down. What did this guy expect? I mean, is he saying that they should have found a way to do this work and to achieve these developments and these and this infrastructure upgrade and save the trees at the same time? Mr. Pettigrew, uh, Smitty, has been a big proponent of trees for a long time, and he led the charge to save the trees in Hawthorne Park on 144th Street last year before he was even elected as a city councillor. And uh, those trees were taken down to make way for a new road, and and that was to alleviate the traffic from 104th Avenue, where the LRT was to run, and as we all know, that's not going ahead now. So he's always been a big proponent to save the trees. And in terms, you know, but there's a constant battle in Surrey, as you know. Do we take down the trees uh, for more development, to build more housing, to build more schools to match that housing? It's hard to balance both, isn't it? And council has made these very difficult decisions to proceed. The latest one involves the Annie Dale Tynehead area to develop that region. Uh, Trees will have to come down there, obviously, uh, to move ahead. Uh, with development there, so and that really upset Mr. Pettigrew when that when that was approved. Uh, but in terms of him leaving the Safe Surrey Coalition, I guess I think the big question now going forward, 
will the other city councillors, some of them anyways, will they follow Mr. Pettigrew? There's always been a very clear split on council um, in, in the votes for various issues. So will the others follow suit? Will they make it official? Will they step away and, and follow Mr. Pettigrew? Uh, mm. He doesn't shoot from the hip. He puts a lot of thought into any of his decisions from what I can tell. Uh, he's a very, uh, he's a person with a lot of integrity. And I know a couple of weeks ago, he tried to bring a notice of motion forward to council. I think it was about two weeks ago to have public consultation held prior to the report on policing going to Victoria. But that was not allowed to happen. And he was clearly upset and frustrated uh, after that was turned down because he felt there should be more transparency in that process. He actually walked out of City Hall and I found him outside sitting, uh, sitting on some stairs. And, and he was really shaken up by that because he was really really convinced that that should take place before the report went to Victoria. So there's been lots of things over the last several months since he was elected that have been getting to him, as he said. And as he said, he just can't take it anymore and has decided to make it official and step aside. So... Yeah, interesting times out here in Surrey, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah, for sure. And and speaking of a, a local police force for Surrey to replace the RCMP, a big marquee promise from Mayor Doug McCallum. What is the status of that, Janet? Well, we are still waiting for the Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth, uh, to maybe release some of that report. Uh, the mayor is now calling on Mr. Farnworth to release the report to the public or maybe a redacted version of it. But first, of course, uh, Mr. Farnworth and his officials have to go through the report. It's around 200 pages, I hear, um, you know, to decide, you know, well, what can we release to the to the public? Obviously, not all of it can go out to the public. So that's what we're waiting, um, waiting to hear from Mr. Farnworth now. When will the public get to see all of it or part of it? And, you know, the big thing everybody wants to know and that we've been talking about for weeks and months now, how much is it going to cost yeah. the average taxpayer in the city of Surrey? Yeah. Uh, that's what people want to know. How can they approve something? How can they give their stamp of approval if they don't know? And that's, that's frustrating a lot of people. That's what we're hearing from these uh, public consultations that are taking place at the community rec centers. Um, should also point out, Smitty, that um, you know we'd like to get some reaction to Mr. Pettigrew's move today. Uh, the mayor and many of the city councillors are back in Quebec City at the Federation of Canadian Municipalities meeting taking place. So the three-hour time difference is making it a little difficult for them to get in touch. But hopefully as the afternoon wears on, we will be hearing from the mayor and we will be hearing from other city councillors. I, I did make contact with Mandeep Negra. He said he was shocked uh, when he heard about it. He And this is interesting. He was not informed prior to me telling him about it. So this came wow. as news to him. He said he had to think about it for a couple of hours and he will be getting back to me later. So it will be interesting to hear what uh, Mayor Doug McCallum has to say about it. Janet, good job in this story. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. Okay, that's Global News reporter Janet Brown.